We are continuing our summer sermon series on heroes of the faith, taking a look at Paul. There's no way we could have talked about significant characters in our faith without having talked about Paul. Um, This is one of our longer sermon series. I told the chapel this morning, I said, if Davis were here every Tuesday in worship playing, he'd go, oh, longest sermon series ever. But we are continuing as we talk about Paul, and we're in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, verses 1 through 12. This is the story of the Jerusalem Council, where they have a conclave to come together and figure out how to address a problem. May God Help us to hear his voice in these words of Scripture. Some people came down from Judea, teaching the family of believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom we received from Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas took sides against these Judeans and argued strongly against their opinion. The church at Antioch appointed Paul, Barnabas, and several others from Antioch to go up to Jerusalem and set this question before the apostles and the elders. The church sent this delegation on their way. They traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling stories about the conversion of the Gentiles to everyone. Their reports thrilled the brothers and sisters. When they arrived in Jerusalem, the church, the apostles, and the elders all welcomed them. They gave a full report of what God had accomplished through their activity. Some believers from among the Pharisees, stood up and claimed, the Gentiles must be circumcised. They must be required to keep the law from Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered to consider the matter. After much debate, Peter stood and addressed them. Fellow believers, you know that early on, God chose me from among you as the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and come to believe. God, who knows people's deepest thoughts and desires, confirmed this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, but purified their deepest thoughts and desires through faith. Why then are you now challenging God by placing a burden on the shoulders of these disciples that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? On the contrary, we believe that we and they are saved in the same way, by the grace of the Lord Jesus. The entire assembly fell quiet as they listened to Barnabas and Paul describe all the signs and wonders God did among the Gentiles through their activity. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we are talking about Paul, who's not always been called Paul. He was originally called Saul, Saul of Tarsus. We believe he was born about 5 AD in Antioch, which was in the province of Cilicia within the Roman Empire. And then he died, most likely martyred in Rome, somewhere around AD 64 or 65. But Paul was born a Jewish man. Not only that, he was a Pharisee. Not only a Pharisee, but a well-educated Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel. The Jewish people and today's rabbis still revere the work of Gamaliel. He is one of the well-known rabbis in their history. To say he studied under Gamaliel is a little bit like saying, I went to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. It's a little bit like name-dropping. The Pharisees were one of the sects within Judaism 
the two we're the most familiar with are the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees only accepted the five books of the law. If Moses didn't say it explicitly, they had no obligation to keep it. And that allowed them to integrate a little more of Greek life, to be a little more Hellenized by the Roman Empire. The Pharisees were zealous to keep the law, to keep it all. And so they had worked on exactly how is the law lived out. When it says don't work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? How much can I carry before I'm working? How far can I carry it before? How far can I walk before I'm engaging in work? And so they tried to be as faithful as they possibly could. And by the time of Jesus, the laws of of Moses in the Old Testament had become 613 rules for living out Judaism faithfully. 365 of those are do-not-dos. And then the rest are dues. When we were in Israel, um, touring the, the country of Israel, we were in Tiberias, which is one of the cities on the, on the um, coast of the Sea of Galilee for Sabbath. We'd been there for a couple days. And we got ready to go down to the restaurant to eat dinner that night. And we got onto the elevator and the doors weren't working right. Like they would open and stay there. And you could push that button a hundred times and the door didn't move. And when it finally closed, we went to the next floor and it opened. It did the same thing. We're pushing the button and it finally closed. And so it, it took a minute or two to get from the seventh floor down to the restaurant where we're eating dinner. <clears throat> what we didn't realize was the elevator had a Sabbath setting. Because one of the things the rabbis had decided was you couldn't kindle a fire. On the Sabbath, pushing a button was an extension of of working, of kindling a fire, of, of turning a light on. So the elevator was set to open and give time for people to get on and off at every floor so that they didn't have to violate their Sabbath code. I have friends who only keep keep kosher, who only are the most observant during the time of the Passover. But for Sabbath, you have to turn every light in the house on that you won't own from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday because kindling a fire, turning a, flipping a light switch is considered work. Um, there are rules. There, there is a, an Old Testament verse that says you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk so they don't eat meat products and cheese products at the same time. Think about that. No cheeseburgers. Now, I have a friend who is Jewish, and she struggled with that, particularly as she was raising her girls. Um, she married a Presbyterian, so they were not a completely Jewish household. But trying to teach them how to keep kosher during Passover, <clears throat> they don't use the same serving utensils, cooking utensils, eating utensils, or even the same fridges for milk and meat. Some do that all year long, some only during Passover. She said, but we Jewish people are also eminently practical. If we use it with the wrong thing, we're not throwing that away. But there had been a rabbinic interpretation that what you could do was that fork that you used inappropriately could die and then it could be resurrected and run through the dishwasher. So at her house, there were house plants that had little signs on them. So when her kids would make a mistake, take the fork and go put it in the Monday plant, stick it in the soil. Next Monday, we can take it out, run it through the dishwasher, put it back in, in the shelf. And I can't imagine 613 rules. I'm not sure we don't have 613 customs surrounding church that they grew up with and it becomes natural. 
But the Pharisees are the ones who wanted to make sure we're being faithful. What does that look like in any situation that we can imagine? And that's not a bad thing unless it goes from being faithful to being legalistic. And it did because that's what happens when we focus on the rules and not the reasons for the rules. So in the early days as Christianity developed, Paul was part of persecuting the early disciples of Jesus. We have in the 7th or 8th chapter of Acts the story of a young Paul, who's still being called Saul at that time, holding the cloaks of people who stoned the first Christian martyr. They drug Stephen outside the city and stoned him to death, and Paul held their coats while they did. It doesn't record him as throwing a stone, but he certainly gave his approval by assisting them. So he was zealous and he, he absolutely persecuted Christians until, until he had his own experience with the living Christ on a road to Damascus. And it changed everything. Paul went from being zealous for the rules, from being rule-filled and legalistic, to being zealous for Jesus and being grace-filled. And he made all the difference in his life. This man who had been zealous about staying away from Gentiles and keeping all the rules and not associating with people who weren't like him, becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was the first person who did that, and he does most of the talking in our passage today. But Paul becomes the one who does it for the rest of his life, allowing Peter to lead the church back in Jerusalem until his death, while Paul expands it. It just, it strikes me as a little humorous that the person who was a really great Pharisee becomes a really great apostle to the Gentiles. And I think it's because Jesus has a sense of humor. He sometimes sends us to do the very thing we didn't want to do. I told the story a couple of weeks ago of my call into ministry. I absolutely did not want to be a female pastor. I'm in Alabama and I didn't want to leave Alabama, but I didn't want to be a female minister in the Bible Belt of Alabama, where very few people ordain women, I thought, that just sounds like unpleasant 90% of the time. But God said, this is what I'm calling you to do. You're going to do it? Or are we going to keep wrestling over it? Paul said, "Mm, my life is different. I'm with Jesus. I've seen the Lord, I've seen the light, and I am on board with Jesus. Now, before I can talk more, about Paul, I need to address this idea that we've turned Paul into a woman hater. And I just need to say as strongly as I possibly can to you, I don't think that's true. I don't. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to owe Paul an apology for making him a misogynist when he's not. What happens is we try to take 21st century value and ethics and read them back onto the characters of the Bible. And that's really not fair. We need to take a look at them based alongside their Old Testament or first century values and ethics and see where do they stand. Because God meets every generation of human beings at the place where we are. We live our faith out in a context of a world around us. And what I see in Paul is Paul pulling people toward God's ideal. Not reinforcing discrimination. But if we look at Paul with first century ethics and values, Paul actually elevates the status of woman. When he tells husbands to love their wives, that's new. They didn't have to love them. 
They just had to live with them and make children with them and figure it out. But Paul says, no, you need to love them. Got to have a different standard. He gives women some autonomy over their own bodies. He says, don't withhold intimacy from one another, except for a period of time to focus on spiritual matters and then do it by mutual agreement. And what we read as not being great to women is overhearing a first century marriage counseling session. That sounds to us a little bit like me reading a housewife's manual from the 1950s. But what he actually says is y'all are partners. Mutually submit to one another. He gives the women the right to voice their disagreement and them to try to work it out, talk it through. You are partners. Make it work. And frankly, what he says would have sounded like good news to the women and probably annoyed a good bit of the men because they're having to give the biggest amount in that to make it happen. It's not the only place that God meets us where we are. In Scripture, we have polygamy. Almost none of us, I hope, would say that polygamy is endorsed by the Bible and is the way we ought to live. If you did, you'd be in the FLDS and not in the UMC. And yet, polygamy plays a huge role in the story of our patriarchs. Isaac and Ishmael. Jacob and Esau, that sibling rivalry happens because there's more than one wife. Solomon, he makes his life difficult because he has hundreds of them. We don't think God endorses that, but it's a given. And so there are different rules among the Israelites from the rest of society with that. The same thing is true of slavery. We don't believe that Scripture endorses slavery. Human beings don't own human beings. And yet they do in both the Old Testament and the New. The difference is the Hebrew people are given rules. They have to be a lot nicer than the other cultures. Your male and female servants both get a Sabbath just like you do. You may not be cruel and dehumanizing to them. It is a pull toward God's ideal, but a recognition that we live in a culture. How does God pull us in that direction? Paul does the same thing with women. And he does the same thing with Gentiles. I believe it would have been much easier for Paul when we hit this debate of how Jewish do Christians have to be to be Christians, to follow Jesus. I believe it would have been much easier for Paul to say, you know what, Peter, you just leave the predominantly Jewish church out of Jerusalem. You'll probably have a few Gentiles, but they're not going to like a lot of what you do. But you do that. I'm going to go out here, elsewhere in the Roman Empire, and I'm going to plant mostly Gentile churches. A few Jews might choose to join us, but I'm going to focus on that, and we won't have to argue about these differences. We'll just both go follow Jesus as we see fit. They don't do that. They have a meeting, and they get in a room, and it says, after much discussion... They try to figure out how we can all be one in Christ. All be followers of Jesus. And the question is, how Jewish do you have to be? And when it talks about circumcision, that's code for conversion. It's not just the physical act of circumcision, which I don't see many adults signing up for, but it meant to keep the whole law of Moses. We hear that when we get to Jerusalem. How Jewish did you have to be? 
And even Peter says, look, we can't even keep all those rules and get it right all the time. Why would we put that on somebody who hasn't been raised with this, who isn't going to live in a predominantly Jewish area, who isn't going to be in a Jewish home? How are they ever going to figure it all out? And how does that really help them become closer to God? So they settled on a very few things, a very short list of three of the things that would be the least offensive. What are the things that Gentiles can do to not offend the Jewish believers? But then how can the Jewish believers tolerate and accept the Gentile believers who are different? It doesn't say the Jewish people have to give up keeping the Sabbath, eating kosher, recognizing holidays, saying their prayers, dressing in a distinctive way. They could still do all of that, but they would find a way to be together. Paul, the person who had been zealous for getting it right, becomes the bridge builder that spans across their differences and brings the two groups together. And he spends his entire life advocating and helping people figure out how do you build a bridge between the culture that you're in and your commitment to Christ. And every time he turned around, he got criticized. This group here comes over to where he is and goes, you're doing it wrong, and Paul's not telling you the truth, and you're going to go to hell. You have to live like this to be saved. And Paul goes, wait a second. I was here when the Holy Spirit showed up. And Peter goes, I was there when the Holy Spirit showed up. Very similar to what John Wesley did. John Wesley didn't want women preaching originally. Just wasn't sure. Scripture, mm, on the fence about that. And so he said women could exhort, meaning they could encourage, but not preach. I'd argue there's not a lot of difference. <clears throat> but he would let them get up and encourage people. But some places where Methodist revival had broken out, they weren't really enforcing that rule too well. And when John shows up and finds women preaching, at first, he's horrified and he's outraged. First of all, they did not listen to me. And second of all, this was not what I had in mind. This is not what I think this revival should look like. And then he took a breath. And he saw what was happening. People were genuinely coming under conviction. They were repenting of their sin. They were coming to Jesus. They were following Christ and becoming fervent for the gospel. And John went, oh, oh, I see God at work here. I'm going to have to change my position and get in line with God. Those things happen because they're bridge builders. John Wesley went on to become a bridge builder. He authorized the first woman to preach in 1827. That's a long time ago. And we stand in a denomination that has been fully ordaining women for longer than I have been alive, 1956. Others are just now coming around to that idea. Because someone built a bridge. Paul did that for us. Often the times where we want to criticize him because he doesn't go as far as we want. Bridge builders find a way to pull the both and together to take two sides and hold them together in some tension. And we figure it out. 
That's how the gospel goes forth to different places and different peoples. And I believe we get invited to build bridges. Jesus built a bridge. He bridged the gap between heaven and earth by putting on flesh and coming here. He bridged the gap between those who were considered righteous and those who were considered sinful by hanging out with both of them and challenging both of them to a life of love and grace. Paul picks that up and builds bridges between those who consider themselves the people of God and those they consider to be the people rejected by God. Where do we need to build bridges? Across worship styles? Across political party loyalties? Across socioeconomic groups? Across issues? We get to make a choice to be a bridge builder or a bridge burner. I want to build a bridge that invites everyone to come experience the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, Paul can sometimes be a controversial figure to us. But it seems that often the people you call to step out and do something different, they're always misunderstood. Whether it was your prophets of old, your apostles of new, or your present day people who try to love and serve and build bridges with those that Christ also died to redeem. Inspire us, embolden us, and empower us to find the places where bridges need to be built and to build them. In Christ's name, amen. We want to invite you during this response song to respond in whatever way Christ is inviting you to do so. The altar is open for prayer. Um, if you would like to make a profession of faith, if you would like to unite with this church in membership, if you would just like a moment, um, you are invited to respond as the Holy Spirit leads you this morning.